love Luke and I love Acts. Luke wrote Acts. He's the, the author of both of those books. And for many years now, my mind and heart have been captured by what Luke is communicating to us in his, in his writings. I think one of the reasons that I'm so captivated by Luke as an author and a theologian is because Luke is the only Gentile author of the New Testament. And if you read his writings, you see that he's very sensitive to the outsider, to the marginalized, as he himself is kind of um, coming into this Jewish community of the apostles and the early church and was a part of, was a companion with Paul and was a part of the whole Jew-Gentile Gentile controversy that we read about in the book of Acts. So it resonates with me at a deep level, I think because, one, um, uh, I'm son of immigrant parents, so kind of an outsider here in this culture, but also growing up in this culture, kind of an outsider to my own culture, part of a blended family, kind of feeling an outsider there as a, as a stepson. So a lot of what Luke has to say really res- resonates with me personally, um, and I think for a lot of people as well. Luke chapter 2 we're going to be reading verses 8 through 12. And in and, 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 and the Gospel of Luke, he talks about how Jesus is sent into the world uh, for the sake of the redemption of the world. And in, the, in, in part two of his writings, the book of Acts, he talks about how the church was sent into the world. And I believe this passage has primarily how Jesus came into the world has implications for how we are to go out into the world. So that's kind of going to be the overarching theme. Chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Can you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have condescended to communicate to us as a friend, opening up your mind and heart to us that we might know you that we might know your heart and your thoughts and that we might know what you're up to in the world and you have invited us in and called us to be a part of what you're doing in the world. And I pray that this passage passage today, as we explore it and dig into it, uh, might give us great insight, Lord, into how we can join together with you in your mission and that all outsiders, and we're all outsiders to you, might feel you welcoming us, inviting us in, and that we might come and know that we are accepted and loved because of Christ. I thank you for all these things in his name. Amen. Well, the passage that we're looking at today is one that we usually only consider during the Christmas season. So I'm hoping to catch you off guard just a little bit here this morning, because you weren't expecting to hear about this until a couple more months down the road here. And by looking at this passage outside of the usual context in which we look at it, um, might help us to see it with some fresh eyes and see some significance um, that we have failed to see maybe before on account of familiarity with it during a certain season. And my desire is that as we dig into this, that we might see something of 
the great brilliance of the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. Um, a little bit better with great clarity and more appreciation. Well, the incarnation is the intersection of God with the harsh realities of the world. The birth of Jesus is the mingling of the songs of angels, glory to God in the highest, a mingling with the song of angels, with the lamentation of the brokenhearted mothers of Bethlehem who had their babies snatched from their arms and slaughtered right before their eyes. Advent is not just about God coming into the world, but about God experiencing the world as one of us. Not only as one of us, but as one of the lowest of us. Embracing poverty, prejudice. He was on the raw end of preferential treatment. The incarnation means that Jesus knows what it is like to not be accepted because you have a thick accent. He knows what it is like to not have much expected of you because of where you're from. He knows what it's like to be rejected because of what you look like. And Christ coming into the world is God's clarion call saying, particularly to outsiders, you are welcomed. You can come. And if we pay close attention to Luke's gospel, we will notice that all along the way, Luke has been telling this story, there's been a hint of scandal. And the scandal grows as he proceeds to tell the stories, as, as he explains the moves of God in the incarnation. And with each move of God, there's a little bit of sketchiness to it, there's a little bit of an edginess to what God is doing in every, every advance of the story. Luke opens up his gospel with the birth of John the Baptist to his parents, um, Zechariah the priest and Elizabeth his wife. And although Luke tells us, he tells us that they were blameless and righteous, walking in all of the commandments of the Lord, that's what God knew about them, but that is not the way they were perceived by the people who were around them. Because Elizabeth was barren. She had no children. And everyone knew in Jewish culture that children were God's great blessing. And the lack of children represented to the people of that day, at best, the lack of God's favor and at worst, the active curse of God. That's how her neighbors viewed it. That's why Elizabeth responds to her pregnancy with these words in Luke 1.25. She says this when she finds out that she's pregnant. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. The birth of John was the removal of her reproach. The point is this. With Luke, I mean with Zechariah and Elizabeth. God resumed his interaction with Israel after 400 years of silence with a couple who had a cloud of suspicion hanging over them. Kind of sketchy. Phase two, the scandal grows in choosing the Savior of, of bringing the Savior into the world through the means of a virgin. First, Joseph, her fiancé, is absolutely scandalized when he hears that his bride-to-be is a mother-to-be and he had nothing to do with it. So he decides to divorce her. You've got to put yourself in Joseph's shoes for a moment as he 
hears the news, goes home, tries to pick up the pieces of his broken heart and carry on with his life until an angel appears to him and lets him in on what God is doing in the world. Then Joseph gets on board, but the scandal only grows because Mary has gone away for three months when she hears, right, the angel tells her, your cousin Elizabeth is pregnant. She goes to visit uh, Elizabeth, comes back three months, and she's pregnant. And at first, you know, you're, you're, you're a citizen of Nazareth, a small town. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows everybody's business. And at first, you're not sure what it is, but there's something different about Mary. But as the weeks go on, there's absolutely no question about it. Mary's pregnant. And for Elizabeth, while there was hints of unrighteousness, I wonder what she did so that God is not giving her a baby. For Mary, there was no hunches and there was no hints. There were just, as people thought, just the cold hard facts. Now, it's hard to imagine God bringing his son into the world under more questionable circumstances. He came into the world beneath the shadow of illegitimacy. And this shadow would dog him all of his days, like in John chapter 8, where Jesus is in a debate with the Pharisees. The Pharisees are losing, and sometimes when you're losing in a debate, don't have a good argument, you try to discredit them by making accusations against them. And so what do they say in in, in John chapter 8? They say, at least we were not born of fornication, implying what? That Jesus was. Thirty years later, the rumors and the scandal haven't died. Joseph's side of the family probably looked at Jesus suspiciously. What really happened with Mary when she was gone those three months? And this rocks me at a very personal level because I was born to an unwedded mother. I was born in illegitimacy. Although Jesus was not, that's how he was viewed. And this is significant because we're used to thinking of Jesus identifying with sinners on the cross, taking on the shame of sinners, hanging there naked, taking on all of our shame. He came into the world identifying with shame already, right from the beginning. The shame of unwed mothers and the shame of illegitimate children. But we need to ask, why this shadow of illegitimacy? Why the scandal? Because God could have brought his son into the world any way he wanted to. And this is the way he designed it. This is the way he rigged it up. There are no coincidences with God. So there's a purpose, and I think there's a meaning in all of this, in the manner in which God brought his son into the world. There are theological reasons, for sure, for the way that God brought his son into the world and introduced, even in Luke's gospel, Elizabeth's barrenness corresponding to Israel's spiritual barrenness, that God could bring life even out of barrenness. The virgin conception, overwhelmingly theological, speaks of real humanity, real deity. God the Son came into the world as one of us, losing nothing of his godness and yet embracing the fullness of our humanity. Speaks of the power of God as well as he can create life in the womb beyond all the natural human means and processes. His actions say all of that, but they say more than that. These events are not only for our theological awareness. They are not only a display of God's glorious and divine almightiness. They also speak to us of the tenderness of God's heart, that he is sensitive to the plight of the sufferer. 
that he is sensitive to the feelings of those that live life full of shame. That he cares about the ones that this world is very comfortable neglecting. How he came into the world tells us so much about why he came into the world. And if we miss this, we miss the meaning of the incarnation almost entirely. As the story continues, we see God pushing further out and further down because that's the nature of grace. It flows downward to the lowest, and it reaches those furthest away to bring them up and to bring them near. And that's what we see here in the next stage of the story of the birth of Christ. We see God's hand of grace reaching further outward and further downward, verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And here we see the hand of God reaching downward and outward socially. Because even though Elizabeth had the stigma of being barren, she was still in the priestly line. She was still of the lineage of Aaron. So her and her husband were still kind of in the right category. They were still the right kind of people. Educated, established, pretty well off, upper crust. But even among the upper crust, they were kind of looked at a little sideways. But... But the story of God's grace continues to flow downward as God goes socially further down and further out as he embeds now Mary and Joseph into the drama. Now, Mary and Joseph were upstanding and decent members of their community. Yet, nothing stands out about them other than their plainness. You know, we assume a lot about Mary, that God chose her to be the, the mother of the Son of God. We assume that she must have been exceptional and better than anybody else, but the Scripture doesn't tell us that. We read that into the text. And even though Joseph really was descended from the line of David, it would probably be as impressive to you as the guy you worked with would tell you tomorrow when you show up at work on Monday morning. He says, you know, my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was George Washington. Might be a little interesting, but it wouldn't really matter because you're still right here at the same level as I am. Nobody cares, right? (laughs) But in this next episode of the story, we see God going even further out and God going even further down, nearing now the bottom of the social ladder. So Luke has taken us from Zechariah and Elizabeth, religious and important people, to Mary and Joseph, religious but unimportant people, to now irreligious and unimportant people as Luke draws our attention to a group of shepherds. Now, shepherds at this time in in this culture were not held in high regard because sheep required care seven days a week. So shepherds were not able to fully comply with the man-made regulations of the Pharisees. So they were viewed by most as being in constant violation of the law. And as such, they were always ceremonially unclean. Because they were irreligious lawbreakers, they would become so despised later on in Jewish culture that their testimony was not even admissible in court. Unsavory, untrustworthy. Yet these were the kind of men that God chose to be the first witnesses to Christ. Now firsts in the Bible, anytime something appears in the first time for the Bible, usually carries with it some kind of special significance. And I think that certainly is the case here because the first ones invited to Christ 
or the last ones you'd most expect. To tell outsiders everywhere, you too can experience this great news, or this good news of great joy that is for all the people. Verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now during the day, each shepherd would take his flock and go out and find pasture and water and so forth and so on. But during the night, shepherds would have this community corral where where different shepherds would bring the different flocks into this one large corral. And the shepherds would take guard duty during the night to protect it from the wolves or thieves or, or anything that might harm the sheep. And this night was like the hundreds of nights that they had spent out there before. But after this night, nothing would ever be the same again. While one of the shepherds was watching and the rest were sleeping, waiting their turn, the night sky was lit up with this brilliance of the glory of God and startling the man on duty, waking everybody else up. And as their eyes adjusted to the brilliance, they see one majestic figure hovering between heaven and earth. And these men, who were typically brave men, prepared to fight off thieves and wild animals, scared out of their minds, and understandably so. Because nothing, nothing can prepare you for when God shows up in your life. And as their hearts are pounding violently within their chests, out of the awful silence, the angel speaks. And he speaks a word of much-needed comfort. The angel said to them, fear not. Every time that human beings realize in the Scripture that they are in the presence of God, the response is always dread and fear. Because instinctively, we know that we are out of place in the presence of God. We know it. Everything about us makes us unfit. That's why Isaiah cries out in Isaiah chapter 6, I am ruined! Woe is me! And Peter despaired there on the on the lake shore, when he saw Jesus and the miracle of, the, of, of all the fish, he fell down on his face and says, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And on each of these occasions, we see God not denying what these men feel. He doesn't say, oh, don't worry about it. You're not really that bad. He doesn't say that because they and we really are that bad. Instead of telling them that they are okay when they are not, He essentially tells them, you are not okay. Everything you feel is true. You are unclean. You are sinful. But I can make you clean. He sent the angel to Isaiah with the burning coal to symbolize God's purifying fire and saying, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Jesus looked down at Peter, probably put his hand on his shoulders and reassured him, don't be afraid. I can change you. From now on, you will be a fisher of men. Don't be afraid. Fear not, he said to the shepherds. You can come out of hiding. And this is one of the great gifts that the gospel brings to us, that we can live a life without fear and that we can finally come out of hiding. We don't have to pretend anymore. We don't have to cover up anymore. We can be honest with who we are because there's now a solution to our problems. You know, there are things in your life that perhaps you are too ashamed even to speak of. The gospel says to you, you don't have to be afraid anymore. There's nothing that you've done that my grace cannot cover. I can forgive you. There are things in your life that maybe you are afraid to deal with because you fear, man, if I bring this up and try to deal with it, my fear is that I can't really change. I've been 
in this for so long. I've been doing this for so long. But the gospel is saying to you, don't be afraid because there's nothing about you that I cannot change. Bring it here. Let me help you. So don't be afraid, shepherds. For although you are in the presence of his holiness, the door stands open for you. Yes, you. For behold, I bring you good news. Don't be afraid because God has good intentions towards you. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And I think the emphasis here of the angel for the shepherds was on all the people. All the people. When the angel said the people, when the shepherds heard the people, they probably meant and understood the people of Israel, God's chosen people. But as in all groups of people, you have the good and you have the bad. And as we have seen, the shepherds would have fallen under the bad. These were the usual suspects. But this good news was for all the people, even outcast and shady shepherds. Because they are not only the recipients of this message, of this message of joy, the angel was telling them, you could be participants of the joy. And it seems that he really wants them to understand this. He says, I bring you good news that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The reality of verse 11, a Savior is the reason for the end of fear in verse 10. In the words of the angel, there is immense grandeur and glory. They are full of promise and full of hope that these men probably learned about in the equivalent of, of our Sunday schools where our kids learn about Jesus. They probably learned about the promises that God gave to David, that there would be a king one day that would come through the, through the lineage of David. So they maybe knew something about what all of this meant because they heard the city of David and that recalled all the best of Israel's history. The, the announcement here of, of, of this royal son. But the shepherds were probably wondering, why bring in the announcement to us? Why, 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 bring, why announce the birth of a king to people like us? We have no political clout. We're not politically important. We have no vo- vote. We have no voice in these matters. We are just like so, so many other people in the world, we're just swept along with the political currents of the world without feeling we have any influence in what's going on. So why announce this king to us? Because the reign of this king will introduce justice and deliverance for the oppressed. Because he's more than a king. He's the Christ. God's most favored and most special servant. The one appointed by God to carry out this ministry. Again, the shepherds might wonder, well, well, why tell us? He's not only the king, he's the Christ, who has so political and now religious connotations. Why why tell us? We're not not religious people. The people who care about these religious things, they're over there, and they don't really mingle or mix with people like us. What will the anointed one have to do with us? Well, the anointed one exists for people just like you. In his first sermon that, that, that you can read later on, a couple of chapters in, in the Gospel of Luke, his first sermon, again, another first, cares with the implications. His first sermon in, in his hometown of Nazareth set the tone for all that Jesus was about to do with his life and ministry. You guys know it. Let me just read it to refresh your mind. Jesus stood up and said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, setting at liberty those who are oppressed. The Christ has everything to do with the poor, captive, blind, and oppressed people of the world. And climbing the summit of Revelation, the angel says that this king, this Christ, is the Lord. The Lord? As in like the Lord of Israel? As in the Lord of the temple? The place we're not even allowed to get close to? Where everything in our culture and everything in our world is designed to announce to us that that's off limit to us? That was the shocking message of the angel for these shepherds. For you, unto you was born this day, this king, this savior, this Lord. And the angels and the shepherds must still be wondering, for us? Excuse me, Mr. Angel, you must not be from around here. You, you sure you got the right address? And because God understood that this would be hard to believe to these outsiders, to these marginalized shepherds, the angel gives the shepherds a sign specifically tailored for them. He says in verse 12, this will be a sign for you. You could look in throughout the Old Testament, and you will not find anything about a manger. I don't think. I may be wrong. John could correct me. It was a sign specifically for them, a sign that meant to communicate a message. And this will be the sign. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. This sign had two purposes. One was to confirm that what the angel was saying was actually true. So they go and tell you, you're gonna, this is what you're going to see so you can believe my words. But I think secondly and more importantly, to confirm that this baby, this news, this joy, this king, this Christ, this Lord was really for the likes of you. This would be a sign that you would find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloth and most importantly for these men lying in a manger. Why was this important? What was this picture trying to communicate? Two things, I believe. One, approachability. First of all, the sign was a helpless baby. So first you have this majestic angel whose very presence fills up the, the, the dark sky with his brilliance, putting the shepherds in dread. And they are told, wait, hold on. God has good intentions for you. Don't be afraid. And the sign of this is that you will find a helpless baby wrapped in swaddling cloths because God has descended and humbled himself to the point where he has to be taken care of by a mother. The awesome and great God in the incarnation has made himself approachable. Made himself approachable. What's more approachable than a baby? They just invite you to come near to them, don't they? All right. Who's who's scared of a baby? Except for nursery workers on church on Sunday morning. In the incarnation, God has removed the barriers that would keep us away by coming as a baby. God invites us to come near to him. But most importantly, for our purposes here this morning, by placing the baby in a manger, that very act announces that all may come near to this baby. The second thing is humility. The the manger is a picture of humility. The manger is is a sign to show how far down and how far out the invitation of the gospel will go. The manger is a sign of profound condescension. It is a sign telling particularly these lowly shepherds that this king, this Christ, this Lord has come down. 
all the way down to their level. And we're so familiar with the story that, that this doesn't really shock us the way that it should. But, but look at who this is. This is the son of David, the long-awaited son of David. This is the Christ, the one to, since Genesis 3 we've been waiting for. This is the Lord that we've all read about. So from that height, that loftiness, that grandeur, that greatness, now look at where he's at, lying in a manger, in a place of animals. Why so humble? Why so low? Because the manger is a sign to show who he came for. If he has come all the way down to your level, shepherds, it is not for nothing. He has come all the way down there. He has come to redeem you. He has come to accept you. That's why this is a sign for you, you who are on the outside. And literally, they were on the outside, right? They lived outdoors with the animals, not the most glamorous of jobs. They were probably very self-conscious as they they would go into the towns and villages for their supplies. It probably smelled very close to anybody. So the king descends into the smelly barn right there with them and says, I'm right here with you. They were outsiders not only... Literally, they were outsiders socially. So the Christ comes, and in his first appearance, as a baby, he's rejected, right? There's no room for him at the end. And right at the time of his birth, when he was most vulnerable, most helpless, Christ came into the world, and the doors were closed in his face. And he ends up where so many of us are on the outside looking in. And they were outcasts, not only only literally, not only socially, they were outsiders religiously. As we mentioned earlier, their occupation meant that they were constantly ceremonially unclean, could not participate in temple worship, could not go to the temple, so the Lord of the temple goes to them. And if we've been paying attention to the way that Luke tells the story, that's screaming to us this message of the grace of God going further out and further out and further out and further down and further down and further down. We see it socially, right? As the story moves, we begin with priests, Zechariah and Elizabeth. We move down to peasants, Mary and Joseph, and we end up way at the bottom with the shepherds. We could also see it geographically. The story begins for Luke in the temple, in Jerusalem, the centerpiece of all of Jewish life and culture. Then as the story goes on, we end up in Nazareth, backwoods, in a house with a teenage girl in her living room. The angel shows up there, common space. And then we finally end up with the manger and the stable where the animals are kept. So from the temple to a living room to a barn. Down, down, down. From priests to peasants to despised shepherds. Out, out, out. And the circle only grows bigger and bigger and big enough to envelop any of us. It doesn't matter what you've done doesn't matter what's been done to you. The way he came into the world tells us why he came into the world. He came in the lowliest of ways because he came for the lowliest of sinners. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because God has sent good news to you for unto you, no matter who you are, there has been born a Savior, Christ the Lord. And the manger as his bed is God's megaphone to the world to announce to all the world that all may come. Good news of great joy for all the people, even you.
wherever you are. And as we come now to conclude this, and as we come nearer to the Christmas season, my desire is that we may not lose the message of the manger. You know, in just a few months, we're going to be in the full swing of the Christmas season, and we're all going to be in danger. We do... We say, not this year, right? This year we're going to be focused on Christ, right? But this is the pull and the busyness and expectations pulling us for so many directions that, that we get caught up in so many things, good things, even religious things. But our busyness may turn Christmas on its head. For just like there was no room for Jesus at the end, we may have no room on our lists for those who really need him. No room in our lives for those who really need us. No room in our homes for those who need the space. And, then, and, and if that's the case, it may be a clue that we have lost something of the significance of what Christmas really is all about. When we care more about our wish lists than we care about people on waiting lists or organs or shelters. When getting a good deal is more on our minds than doing good deeds for people who are actually in need. When the price of presents matters more to us at that moment than the plight of poor people all around us. When overeating with friends and family is more important than meaningfully connecting with those on the outside still looking in. My desire is that Cornerstone and churches all around our city may be the kind of church that powerfully echoes the message of the manger, that God's grace may continue to flow further down and further out, that you may be a church with your ear open, listening for the Elizabeths of the world who are crying out because of their barrenness, because life and family has not turned out the way they thought it would that you may have your eyes open for those young couples beginning to feel the weight of life. May you make room for them in your lives, and if need be, make room for them in your homes. May you be the kind of people with an open hand who, to, to open hand to those who feel the world has turned their backs on them, who feel ignored and neglected by all those who matter. That's the message of the manger. God's megaphone to the world, that his grace flows down, his love reaches out. Love that first came to us and then calls us to take it to others. Calls us to lay down our lives in metaphorical mangers all around our city that we may so design. God designed the, the, the coming of his son into the world in a specific way to communicate a specific message so that I believe now he calls us to design and rig up our lives in a specific way to communicate that same message of welcome and acceptance and that we're down here also together with you because there are people who have no choice but to be there. They can't get out. So God calls some of us, I believe, to go to be with them where they're at. That they might see And they might know that there is good news of great joy for all the people because his people continue to be an echo of that same welcoming, that same acceptance, that same spirit of the manger of coming down and going out. So may we as his people bring that sound of that joy down to the muffled cries of those so in need of Christ. Can we stand with me, please? Father, all of us can look back in our time in our lives and remember, as Paul says in Ephesians, the most 
for me, the most somber and sad words in all the Bible, a time when we were without hope and without God in the world. And yet you rigged up in our lives a person, a family member, a book, a a booklet, something that caused our lives to intersect with the message of the gospel. And you ravished our hearts as you opened our eyes to behold the beauty of your son and called us to called us to you by your spirit and you came and i pray that you would use us lord that we would echo that same message that we would um, embody that same love that you showed us that we may do that for those that are around us in the world thank you for cornerstone church thank you for their witness lord thank you for their sacrifice and their love and i pray that you would speak powerfully not only through the excellence of their preaching god but through the sacrifice of their lives In Jesus' name we pray.